Today's episode is presented by Vare. Vare was founded with the goal of building an affordable everyday wristwatch that blends tasteful design with extreme durability and functionality. Vare returns a sense of dignity to the affordable wristwatches and are built to last. Vare is a true American watch company specializing both quartz and automatic watches. Vare is offering our listeners 15% off if you use the code PODGO15, P-O-D-G-O-1-5. Go to varewatches.com, V-A-E-R watches.com to learn more and get your new timepiece today. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804-592-1871 for a 15-minute free consultation to get started with your plan. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic will be centered around finance and a topic that is uniquely suburban, in my opinion, and that is the world of real estate or shopping for your residential home. And joining me is Alex from the Main Street Finance Podcast. I actually had a chance to be on his show, and while we were chatting, He had told me that he has gone through the process of buying his first home. And I thought it was a good idea to bring him onto the show because the Main Street Finance podcast focuses on financial literacy for the uninitiated. And if anybody dips their toe into the financial arena, you know that it's full of acronyms and definition upon definition. So it quickly gets overwhelming or can get overwhelming. So I personally appreciate anybody that is attempting to simplify the methods and the process so that people can ultimately own their own finances. So I'm really glad to get him on the show. And I think the world of real estate has a very similar challenge to it. It can get very complicated, but if you have certain simple rules that you're using when you are looking for your home, going through the purchasing process, you can find the place you're looking for and not have added to extra stress in your financial world. So Alex, again, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Oh, it's no problem at all. You know, just sitting at home, sitting in the cave and thought, you know what, let me give my man a call. (laughs) And was the cave part of your must have when you were deciding what kind of a house you wanted to get? No, I I got to say I bought the house before I got into podcasting. It was just this is just a third bedroom, the or guest bedroom number 2. So not enough guests so you figured you'd put a podcast studio in. Oh, none at all. It's amazing how few guests you get when you move 600 miles away from home. 
I actually know that feeling pretty well. Uh, I am, yeah, I, I'm the same. I've kind of moved from place to place. I grew up in Pittsburgh and have really not lived there in my adult life for more than a six month period. So yeah, trying to get people to come and see you wherever you are sometimes can be a little bit of a challenge. And similarly, I, I record not quite in one of the guest bedrooms, but a little cubby room right off the side of it. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, before we get into the specifics of shopping for a first home or any home, really, do you want to give a little bit more background about what interested you in starting a podcast and focusing on personal finance in particular? Well, absolutely. I have, well, not to get too personal from the get-go, we're only two minutes into the episode, but uh, I come from a family that was very not so financially literate, and hopefully they don't watch this. I'll just make sure not to advertise it to them. But (laughs) there's a lot of financial mistakes growing up. For a lot of people, a big book in their lives was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Well, I ended up having both, and they were the same guy. So I had my dad, he was a river captain on the Mississippi. And I mean, they make all right money, but it's not the greatest. He did that for a long time, then ended up getting a new job, which ended up paying quite a bit more. So he likes to impart a whole bunch of rich dad, poor dad wisdom on me because he's both. So it started there and it's like, you can see like his quality of life went up and not just like with the stuff, but it's just less stressful when you're not having to worry about, you know, there's no mortgage payment you have to worry about or the cars, you know, you don't have to worry about them getting repossessed. There's just a lot less stress when you have a cushion. And then when I went to college, I started out in computer science, but then I ended up going to finance and in finance, the class that I was most looking forward to was a personal finance class. It was Finance 123, which I thought was hilarious that it was 123, but I don't make the numbers. <laughs> well, they're making sure you can at least count <laughs> starting from the very beginning. Oh, for sure. But the problem there was that the semester before I signed up to do it, they cut the program for lack of interest in the program. So that whole class was just gone. So I was like, oh, well, I guess no one's going to teach me this. So I guess I'll just look it up. So, I mean, I go through, I mean, I have an honors degree in finance and there's not a lot that they teach you specifically about personal finance. It's like they teach you corporate finance and they go, oh, here's how this could also apply to your own personal finances. So I was like, well, you know, like I have a degree in finance and I didn't learn personal finance like that. That bothers me. Like, I think there's something systematically wrong there where we're just going to not teach you about this certain kind of finance. And it's the finance that everyone uses. Yeah. And also gets you in potentially the most trouble if you don't know what you're doing. That really does say something that a college class and we won't go down the rabbit hole of student loans and student debt, but (laughs) that is the class that gets cut and enter all of the frustrations with higher education and being saddled with student debt. So that's sort of a sad story. Yeah. It got to the point where, you know, everyone was on Robin hood, like Robin hood was, I think a couple years old at that point. So all the finance majors, we were all known for like, we'd be sitting in the classroom just kind of like, Oh, on Robin hood. Hey, what are you putting in? So a lot of like day trading kind of stuff, but we're all college kids. Like we all had like 200 bucks. So it was all the risky stuff, which I actually kind of recommend doing that with a smaller amount of money, just because if you do that for six months, you start to get a feel for, okay, so this is how the stock market works. 
Here's how you do these buy transactions. Here's how you do these sales transactions. And it really gets you comfortable with the market. Some days you see like your $200 spikes up to 250 Then it drops down to 180 Then goes right back to 200 So if you do that for six months, it's like, you can, I don't want to say you get numb to it, but you start to come to the realization that this is how this works. So it's like, okay. So then when you start doing serious investing, you know, because you have that experience that, okay, yeah, this just happens. So you get the finance majors, like a lot of my friends were not finance majors. So I'm trying to share the love and tell them. And it's like, they don't have the background knowledge to even know what I'm talking about. So it's like, well, people need to kind of learn this stuff. And then I graduated and then I'm so much of a finance nerd. I went to all my parents, aunts, uncles, and I was telling them, I was like, hey, you have your 401k statement? Let's see what you're invested in. You, you want me to take a look at it? I'll tell you what you're in. Only my mom really took me up on it. And I was looking at it and I was like, oh, this is all kinds of jacked up. So I was explaining to her, like, here's what this is. Here's what this is. Here's what you're in. Here's what's happening. And she was in some mutual fund that was really underperforming, like even the average stuff in the portfolio. So I went through doing that. And then it just bothers me. Like every time I meet someone, I'm talking money or something. And then it's just like no one knows. No one understands. And then this is the stuff that you can retire early from. And right around this time, I discover bigger pockets. And they get me into the financial independence movement. So I get into that and go straight down the rabbit hole. And then I end up moving to my new spot that's 600 miles away from home. And it's like, you know what? For about a year up to the point that I started the podcast, I was trying to think, how do I want to like, how do I want to teach people? Like, can I volunteer? Can I like I've volunteered? I've gone to the Boys and Girls Club and taught lessons. So it's like I'm trying to think, OK, what's the most efficient use of my time? How can I put content out there to help the most amount of people? And it turns out if you make a podcast and put it out there. It's a couple hours of work on the front end to put out an episode, and that episode is up there forever. And, of course, it's very, very accessible. I, I applaud you for uh, having the lessons that you were doing for the Boys and Girls Club. That's that's really cool. I think, frankly, a, a lot of people could take the lesson of spending time doing those kinds of things is, I would argue, as important, if not more important than the amount that you're giving over to charity. Absolutely. Like one of my biggest problems, and I think the thing that something that I completely passed over that really pushed me towards this path is I work for a bank. I've worked for a bank for the last three, four years almost. And all banks have to participate in something called the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act. And part of that is delivering financial education to underserved markets where those banks have physical locations. So they're constantly looking for volunteers. It's like, hey, you know, if you want to get your volunteer hours, uh, we're doing a thing where we're going to go out to such and such high school and we're going to talk about, you know, savings accounts. Almost right after that, I was moving 600 miles, moved into an apartment because I had two weeks to find a place to live 600 miles away. So find an apartment, get settled in the apartment, immediately move out and get a house, move into the house, get comfortable in the house. And like as soon as I'm in the house for a month or two, then I have the idea for the podcast. One thing right after the other, I guess. Um, when you moved, did you already have it in your head that you were ready to buy a house? I knew that I was ready to buy a house if I had the down payment. So it was kind of like in my head. It's like reflecting back on it. I don't know if I'm just trying to justify it that, oh, I was ready. I just needed the money. That was the one thing holding me back. There was no kind of maturity or fear there at all. It was just uh, that down payment. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm just twisting things a bit subconsciously, but like, was I ready? Yeah. 
I can relate a little bit because when I made my move back closer to where family was. So when I first graduated college, I was out West in Salt Lake City for a couple of years. And then I got a job that brought me back East uh, into central Pennsylvania. And it sounds like a pretty similar story. I told myself that I needed to buy a single family home. And my main reasoning was just a more space and B, I didn't want to be having a movie on too loud anymore and have the big knock on the wall <laughs> that you're sharing with somebody in a condo or apartment. But the rest of the considerations, I don't think I really had thought through as well as I probably should have. The first of which, and I think most realtors would probably tell you this, is do you have any sense for how long you're going to be in the area that you're buying the home? So when you started to initiate the process, do you feel like you check that box or how long you would actually be in the home? Well, I did consider it, but I don't think it was something that was really holding me back. Now, ideally, I knew for sure I was going to be here at least two years because I've been sort of transient beforehand, but I've always pretty much lived places about two years. And for my new job, the job that I moved up here for, I absolutely love it. I do not see myself finding new employment, trying to go somewhere else anytime soon. So as far as the career box, that's checked. Then you have maybe the area box. You know, how good is the spot that you're at? Are you willing to stay there? You know, taxes, roads, uh, businesses nearby, stuff that you'd like. That box is checked. Like with my new area, I love it. I, I don't know a single spot in my old state that's better than the area that I'm in. So... As far as that box is concerned, that's checked. But even if it didn't work out, I was fine staying here at least 12 months. And 12 months is the magic number if if you have any real estate investors out here that once you're in a home for, oh, I'm sorry, it's two years. <laughs> but I knew I was good for two years. So if you have any real estate investors in the audience, two years is the magic number that if you live in a house for two years and then move out, you don't get capital gains taxes if you rent it out. So I was totally prepared with moving out, going somewhere after two years, and then keeping this house as a rental. It's in a good enough area. It's a nice enough house. I could definitely get enough to cover the mortgage out of the rent. So even if all of my other boxes ended up not getting checked or getting unchecked sometime in the next couple of years, I still had that as a contingency. See, you're making me sound smarter already because I definitely know I didn't know that when I bought my first house. However, I ended up being there for about three years and I bought it in 2007, I think the end of 2007. So oh, perfect seemed, time to buy a house. Well, kind of. <laughs> it, it seemed like – well, yeah, kind of not, right? Um it seemed like the market was starting to go down at that point, but of course it kept going down. <laughs> uh, I didn't have a crystal ball, didn't know how it was all going to play out, but luckily I didn't hit the very beginning of you know the global the meltdown. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the only reason I can at least say kind of. It was starting to come down and I was certainly fresh out of the gate enough to say, hmm, maybe I should back off for a little bit longer. It just seemed right at that moment that, wow, this seems like a good time to buy. And of course, uh, it, 
it was not relative to what went on through 2008. So when I did move, I just wasn't willing to sell the house for a loss. I really wasn't looking to have a real estate investment for any more of a purpose than that, just to hold on to it and rent it out until the market recovered enough that I could at least get out of it what I put into it. So it ended up, ended up being a good experience, but it was not all on purpose when I first uh, bought the house. Bought it wasn't house. all thought out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so okay. So now that is interesting. And again, I'm really going to press you on what your process was for selecting a real estate agent. And I think that probably they would say more like, what, four to five years, I would imagine that you need to make sure you're in a spot. And of course, I doubt they would go into a conversation about uh, a rental property after that, unless you really pressed them on it. So uh, what was your process for figuring out who would be a good choice for you for an agent? And, and how did you go about that search? Well, unfortunately, I got to let you down a little bit. Uh, so I moved up here with my girlfriend. My girlfriend's cousin's husband is a realtor Perfect. <laughs> up here in the same area. <laughs> so now I hope he doesn't watch this, but I did check up on him. So it's not like I just blindly trusted him. So yeah. I had met him ahead of time, kind of gauged out his personality, how he operates kind of as a person. Then we started talking business and I was surreptitiously quizzing him on uh, just various things because I can talk the talk. What got me into all of this was listening to bigger pockets, which is primarily a real estate investing podcast podcast website and social media all that good stuff for the free plugs here you go so i mean i could talk the talk with a realtor so we were going back and forth and you know we we're just kind of hanging out one night and i was just kind of surreptitiously quizzing him which mm-hmm. for the listeners out there take a take someone out to lunch like they understand and they expect people are gonna not necessarily interview them but want to speak with them and meet with them before they sign the agreement that's hey i am now officially your realtor and you can't cheat on me so a lot of realtors are expecting that. So if you just go, hey, instead of just doing a random, like, I'll come to your office, you want to go get lunch. And you can just go sit with them, just talk with them for an hour, see kind of how they are as a person. Like, are they rushing? Are they constantly checking their phone while you're sitting there trying to have a conversation with them? And that'll just give you an insight on how much time they're going to give you. So how well, like, you know, ask them some basic questions. You know, how well are they able to answer it? Are they able to simplify it enough for you to truly understand it like not just nod and go okay i think i got an idea like how well are they are at explaining that then you can always look them up with the better business bureau do you have any samples of the questions that you asked well so keep in mind i'd only met this guy like once so this is like the girlfriend's extended family who lived 600 miles away from where i used to live where i was born and raised so i had only met him once before i moved up here so he was still very much a stranger even though he was someone you know my girlfriend was vouching for so you know, just basic stuff like, oh, so you had a busy year, huh? Like, this is a whole new area. How's the market? How many houses have you sold this year? Oh, wow. You got to you can't just come out and say, how many houses have you sold this year? Like, you got to have that conversation. So, so how good is the market up here? How many houses have sold? Oh, wow. That may, man, how many, how many have you sold? That's amazing. Oh, really? So you just kind of ask the two or three sidestepping questions before you ask the one you, you want. But then again, some people might not be as uh, sneaky as I am. <laughs> Let me press you a little bit with 
what kind of answer were you looking for as far as how many houses? Because I think maybe people that haven't been through the process would immediately say, okay, the more houses they've sold, the better the realtor they are. And that's who I want to work with. Is that kind of what you were looking for? No, it's the problem with that question is it's not that simple. So at the time I was talking to him, it was about March. So if the number is too high, or at least what you would think would be too high, or let's say one a week, let's say he's doing more than one a week, that probably means that they are going to have a lot of clients at the same time, which may or may not imply how much time they're going to have for you. If they've got all this other stuff on their plate, like if you're a first-time home buyer, chances are you're going to need a lot more hand-holding than the average person buying or selling a house. So you kind of need that realtor that's not selling a house every week. Someone that has the time to really explain things to you, answer your phone calls. Because you can have these realtors that, oh, I sold 30 houses this year already and it's only July. Well, those are probably the people that are either like having assistants that they're farming you out to, or rather farming all their clients out to, or like they're focusing on the big ones and you're a small fish, so you're going to go with my assistant over here, this realtor in training who works with me, all this other stuff. So there's not a specific number you're really looking for, but you just kind of want to gauge like, okay, about how busy is he or she? Like, will they have the time for me? And then you can ask them straight up, wow, that sounds like a lot of houses. Like how much one-on-one time do you get with your average, uh, I guess, client? Yeah. That's exactly what I was hoping you were going to say. Because, for example, I think when we get into the end part of buying a home, i.e. the negotiation, I I would think people also would think, oh, the more deals that somebody has done, then they're going to be a good negotiator, which they might be. But I have certainly seen in my experience that somebody that's working on high volume may be working against you in that they're telling the selling realtor, basically, okay, well, I'll I'll get my guys to to this amount or vice versa if you're selling a house uh, because they want to push the volume and don't necessarily have your best interest at heart. So there is definitely a balance there. I agree with that. Yeah. And they might not be willing to play the game as well. So if you put in an offer on a Monday and then they respond, typically they have like 24 or 48 hours to respond to an offer. So if you put in an offer on Monday, they give you a counter on Tuesday then you got to give them something on Wednesday. It could be that you have a realtor that's so busy that they don't have time to play this back and forth game for a week, which I say game, we're talking thousands of dollars of people's savings here and was potentially going to turn into a loan. But all that to say that if you get a really busy realtor, they might not want to spend five days going back and forth doing these offers. They might go in for the first offer and be like, look, they're offering this. Does that sound good? And then typically the other agent's going to have an idea. And it's like, uh, they're probably going to need to go higher than that. Okay, how much higher? Like, I need I need a number. Like, just give me something. Okay, so then they might press you to offer higher than what your counter offer might have been otherwise. Exactly. And that, for me, is where the experience gets soured, I guess is probably the best way to say it. But I, I, I've definitely had maybe a little bit of disappointment in some of my experiences. L- luckily for me, I'm hard-nosed enough about finances that I push back. And if I'm out of my comfort zone for what I'm willing to have offered, then I have no problem saying it. However, for those that maybe aren't quite as hard-nosed, I'll stick with the same description. I I would feel bad that they might get pushed into offering an amount that they don't feel comfortable with. And as I mentioned into the intro, 
gosh, talk about taking something that should be a very memorable experience of life and hopefully is an enjoyable one and just turning it into something really nasty and a nightmare is, is kind of a sad, sad thing that could potentially happen in my opinion. Yeah. And another thing, if you're trying to have fun with the process, like depending on your situation, it can be either like a really memorable experience or a really not so great experience. Not, not, not so great, but not so significant. Like with mine, I feel like, I don't want to say I feel like I got cheated, but I feel like there definitely wasn't as much of a like big deal about it as there could have been. So I'm in a market that's hot. The rating real estate agents and brokers use to keep track of if it's a seller's market or a buyer's market is a term known as month's supply. So basically, if no new houses got put up for sale, how long would it take for all the current houses that are listed for sale to sell out to where there was nothing? How they use that metric is six months is about a break even. If that number is less than six months, so if that number is four months, that means if no one else decides to sell a house for the next four months, there will be no houses available for you to purchase. But if that number is, let's say, eight months, there's not a lot of buyers. So it's kind of a metric of the lower the number is, the hotter the market, because people are buying, 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 buying. And the market right. that I'm in currently, at the time that I purchased, we were at a like two and a half month supply. And then it even got worse. I think right now, so my realtor still sends me like monthly emails. Like he sends out a, like he has a emailing list. It's like, hey guys, here's the current status of the market. The last one he sent out, I think we're at like 1.05. Wow. Yeah, that seems pretty, pretty hot. <laughs> yeah, people are buying, buying, buying where I'm at. So, so it's like having that number in mind and where I'm at, people were buying, buying, buying houses. So for me, it's kind of a, I put in like three offers and the houses disappeared, like just gone. Like, oh, well, you came in to put in the offer, but we just got one accepted. Like houses were disappearing. If you saw a house and waited six hours to put in an offer, you lost it. With that being said, I had to go for a new construction. So I met with the realtor for the construction company. We signed some docs and that was about it. And then my realtor handled everything. I really didn't really go through anything with that. And then the lender handled everything on that side. Luckily, I have some good credit. So that was all handled. So there was like no hiccups. And then because of Corona was taking full effect at the time I closed, there wasn't even that big, all right, here's the realtors are here. The lenders are here or my lender is there. You've got the notary. You got the signing agent. So, you know, the big signing, you get to go up, sign the paperwork. They slide you the keys happily ever after you're a homeowner. No, it was Corona. So I pulled up in a parking spot in front of the title company, a guy ran out in gloves and a mask, gave me a stack of papers and said, Hey, I'm going back inside. If you have any questions, call the phone number that's on the door. That's a different <laughs> experience. Certainly. I guess you could take as much time as you wanted, not feeling like everybody's staring at you and you're just supposed to sign the pages. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I just but, sat uh, in my yeah. car for an hour and 15 minutes. I read every page cause you know, I'm petty like that, but like I just sat there for an hour, sitting in my car, playing music, just reading through documents. Okay, I swear to, I hereby swear to pay this much per month, this much for whatever for this many years. Okay, signature. Okay, HOA. Yeah, why not? Okay, what's this one? Paying my real estate agent. All right, I guess I'll sign. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, let's let's talk about that one real quick. What are your thoughts? 
on the current way for looking at real estate and what role the realtor plays. Now you moved to a different area. So I definitely would argue there is a role to be played there. And and two of the three home purchases I've been through was me moving to a brand new area that I didn't know. So that was something that I could rely on them for. But our most recent purchase between my wife and I, we're way too A-type and wanting control of the process that we looked at every single house on our own, knew the areas very, very well because we'd been here at that point for three or four years. And really, it was almost just, I hate to say paper pushing, but but really, that's what it came down to for the realtor. And it does make me wonder, uh, depending on, on the move for somebody, like every, just like everything else, it seems like it's moved online and there is a lot of self-service that can be done. So do you have an opinion of what the role of the realtor should be in the process as far as house hunting? I think as far as house hunting, you can do a lot online, but realtors, I think, kind of know the secrets, if you know what I mean. So it's kind of like, I like to compare real estate agents to like lawyers. So if you're in some kind of lawsuit or you're trying to do something, you can represent yourself in a lot of cases. So it's like, you can go online. I mean, all the laws are posted. You could go to your state's website, look up the related, they usually have search functions, look up the related laws. You can do a lot by yourself, but you run into a couple problems. One, you're not used to it. B, you're not 100% of what you're doing. You've got your uh, Google degree. You might do all this research, look into it, and then once you get up to bat, realize that you're playing the wrong game. Or you might not know the ins and outs of a specific area. Now, a real estate agent, their full-time job is, okay, what development is going up over here? All right, well, what about this block? Oh, the factory over there? Well, they're actually planning on having an extension on the factory moved across town, and you're going to be downwind of that. And I just think there's a lot of different ways that doing your Google search and looking up stuff, that there's a good chance you're going to miss something. And that's why these guys and girls get paid, is that they live, breathe, and just live this stuff. So I think having them is really important, even though there is a ton you should do on your own. And you can do a lot of it on your own. Do it and double check the real estate agent because you don't want anyone pulling the wool over your eyes. And I tell that, I say that about everyone. If you have a financial advisor, double check them. If they tell you something, Google it. Me, I say it on my podcast. If I tell you something money-wise and you're not sure, Google it. Double check me. I can misspeak. I can be wrong just as well as anybody. Same thing with a real estate agent. If they can help you, go for it. But whatever they tell you, you know, do a Google search. CYA, you never know. But part of them being there is to give you the ideas. Like, oh, have you checked this neighborhood? Oh, by the way, such and such company is actually building a new neighborhood right over there. That's actually a lot of the way where I found out where my house is. It's like, oh, you know, they're actually building a development over there. And because it's slightly outside of the city limits, you're actually going to save yourself like $20,000. So you can get the big picture stuff by Googling, but at the end of the day, for the little stuff, that's where they really shine. One other thing that comes to mind, I think if you do enough digging, you probably can get to it, but it seems like a realtor can get to the comps a heck of a lot quicker and more reliably, I think, than the general public can. I mean, granted, you can use Zillow. I think you can probably even go to, heck, like a... 
public records or things like that that should presumably be available. But I know they would definitely have tools available to make sure that you're, let's say, not buying a house that is significantly more expensive than every other house in the neighborhood. So, you know, it could affect your appreciation or something like that. Um, so that, that kind of research, I think, is definitely helpful as well as knowing an area if you do not know the area. And let's jump back for one other preparation item. What is your rule of thumb for how much you can afford? And let's say relative to your annual income, what were your parameters? I didn't look at it annually, personally, because annually, a lot of things can happen in a year. A lot less of an amount of things can happen in a month. So I did mine based off of the monthly payment. And my general rule of thumb, know what you want to spend before you go talk to a lender. Because you're going to give all your information to a lender, and they're going to plug it in. And this this isn't anything wrong with them, because this is what you're asking for. How much house can I buy? So they're going to tell you, this is how much house you can buy. And if you've heard of the concept of anchoring, anchoring is you tend to be anchored or hooked on whatever the first number you hear is. So if you go to the banker and you don't have a price range in mind, you go in, give them all your details, they tell you, okay, you can afford a $350,000 house. Well, that's based off of you giving them your income. They don't know what your debts are. They don't know how many cars you have. They don't know that, you know, little Timmy has to go to soccer practice. All they're looking at is here's what you make per year, so here's what you can get. So I think know what you can afford beforehand. It's like, you know what? I think maximum I want to spend is maybe 250 So then when you go to the banker and they say 350 it's like, uh, I don't need to go that high. So as far as a rule of thumb, I would say keep it under maybe 30% of your total take-home pay. And I would do that after taxes. From your perspective, does that include a specific mortgage length of time? So for example, if you ask, I think most people what the standard length is, they'll say 30 years. My opinion is... I really don't want to be paying my mortgage for 30 years. So I look for something less, but obviously that means if you're looking for something less, that means if you're looking at a monthly amount, uh, it's going to fluctuate about the total that you can afford. So uh, what are your thoughts for what is the appropriate length on the mortgage that you're trying to secure? Something I say a lot is personal finance is personal. So there are a lot of people who are big into investing that'll say, If you can get a 30-year mortgage at 3%, you take as long as you can to pay that off because 3% is basically nothing. You will almost guaranteed beat that in the market every year. So you have those kinds of people. And those are some very not-so-risk-averse people. Risk-happy, (laughs) risk-searching. But there are also people who will say, hey, get a 30-year mortgage because you can get a 30-year mortgage And then there's no prepayment penalty. So you can pay as much as you want per month. Is your note $1,000 a month? Pay $1,500. Pay $2,000. So a lot of people will say, get the 30-year mortgage because that's a contractual obligation. You, No matter what, if your mortgage payment is $1,000 a month, rain or shine, lose your job or not, you have to give them $1,000 a month. So if you get the 15-year mortgage and that number jumps to $2,000 a month, I mean, it's fantastic that you're paying off the loan early, but also push comes to shove, 
that's two thousand dollars that you have to come out of pocket if you lose your job there's a pandemic there's my point is if you lock yourself into the lower loan amount so my point is if you lock yourself into the lower loan length you're locked in and it's fantastic that you're paying it off early but it gives you less flexibility in a time where you potentially could need as much as you can get so how i personally address that is i kind of met in the middle a lot of people will do a 15 year and a lot of people will do a 30 year so what i did was i went and i did a 20 year with my bank or the bank that i went through they allow you to do really any term you want do you want an 18 year mortgage sure go for it so different finance companies might do it differently but my bank lets you do whatever you want so i did a 20 year so if i don't pay anything extra I'm still I'm only locked in for 20 years. That's it. Cuts 10 years off my mortgage. It didn't increase my payment by too much. And even if I put nothing additional to it, I'm still paying it down faster than what a normal person would. And in good times, I can pay more on it than I was planning on. Because you know what? If I want to pay an extra $500 a month, I'll pay an extra $500 a month. So I'm a big fan of having that freedom so that if something happens, you can pay less because you're not contractually obligated to that 15-year payment. But also, I kind of like being contractually obligated in a complete disregard of what I just said. So I shot for the middle and I did a 20-year. With finances, it's all about, I guess, the balance of mathematics and emotions going on. So, for example, if somebody that's getting the 30-year that got it because they like that lower payment, what are they doing with that extra money they just freed up? Are they actually investing it? and getting the extra money in the stock market because they're not paying down that loan or are they spending it on a bunch more restaurant bills or clothes or other things like that, in which case maybe not the best way to go and maybe some forced discipline in the mortgage being a little bit lower to, uh, to, to handle that. But at least for the month to month, that does give a little bit of math uh, to go in with. And I also even... Going back to the philosophy of having a number in mind and, and however you get to what you believe you can afford, I totally agree. Don't listen to the bank at all uh, with what they say you're able to get because it's usually way more than you probably should be spending, quite frankly. And as you mentioned, that doesn't include the other obligations that you may already be paying for. And at least as far as my experience was concerned, I've always hovered around. So I frame my question, obviously, because that that has been my method of what annual income is and then yeah, doing the math afterwards. And I, I was always around like twice my salary, which I believe is probably low for what the standard advice is. I, I want to say it's more like two and a half to three times, which seems way too high to me. Uh, and actually the house that we're in now, a little bit dumb luck. We were really look at more like one and a half times, but luckily we happen to be looking just before um, some, some income increases. And we ended up being right around one times our annual salary, which um, works out really well as far as your overall finances and budget is concerned. So um, that's a really, really crucial part of the, the prep work. I think for anybody is concerned to figure out where they need to be. And let's also touch real quick on any other criteria that you might've had. For example, 
for us with this latest house, we plan to be here for a very long time. So school district is always in mind because it does affect the housing prices, but um, this would be the school district that my children would end up going to once they get to that age. Um, also, just looking at the surrounding neighborhoods and houses that are in your neighborhood. I mentioned I have always with uh, purchases tried to make sure that I'm not buying the most expensive house in the neighborhood. Actually, the best is to buy the least expensive that needs some work, let's say, and you're doing some DIY and you really get some, uh, you increase your equity by by doing those kinds of improvements. Any other check the box items that that you had on your list as far as location or other houses, anything like that, that came to mind? Well, there's a couple things that I'll be honest, I didn't think about before I moved in, but now that I've been here about almost six months now, hard to believe, but now that I've been here almost six months, just a couple things that have popped up that I've really considered. First off, something that I kind of accidentally went into, drive around the neighborhood a couple times a week at different times. Something I realized quite early is that in my neighborhood, there's about 100, 112 houses, something like that. And of those, about six of them house some form of law enforcement officer. So you drive into the neighborhood, first thing you see is three decked out sheriff's deputy vehicles. So it's like anyone coming into the neighborhood are going to also see that. And they're actually real. They are almost not coincidentally spaced out throughout the neighborhood. So it's almost like they set up like, okay, you take this street. I'm going to take this street. We'll keep all our cop cars parked out on the streets. That way people know what's up. So if there's a lot of police officers there, chances are it's a quality area. But then also look for kids. Like If you see a lot of kids typically it's a pretty decent area. Like you're going to have a lot of nice kind of people. I've discovered that myself. Another thing to look at is utilities. So I'm kind of, I don't want to say middle of nowhere, but I'm I'm 15 minutes away from city center, but I'm just far enough outside the city to where I'm basically in the country. So utilities is a big thing. So we have two providers for phone and internet. One of them is not the greatest. The other one is awesome. Or at least from, I don't have them yet because they haven't laid the lines yet. So if there's only one provider of, you know, cable and internet, then chances are they know that that's the neighborhood they can skimp on the service calls. Uh, Gosh, I I would think anybody would be able to pick out the providers that you're talking about uh, describing it that way. Uh, But that that is a good point. Uh, I've Heck, I think my parents right now are in that situation where they only have one of the providers where luckily where I'm at, I have both. And even if nothing else, separate from which you like better than the other, whenever your contract is up from one to the other, it it helps when you make that obligatory phone call and say, hey, I want to renew my intro deal. And if you don't, I'm just going to jump over to the other guy. And not only does the customer service end up being probably a little bit better, but your pricing can tend to be a little bit better just because they have to be competitive with viable competition that's there. So that's definitely, I think, another uh, good point in the process. One other item that strikes me, you mentioned the loan and having all that paperwork done and so on. And I think by and large, and I would probably agree, nobody really cares that much for, for the loan. It's It's one of those things where you would probably remember a bad experience if you actually had the the mortgage broker screw something up and affect the closing date or something else go on. But if they do it correctly, you sort of just don't notice that that's the, you know, they've done their job if you just don't think about them at all. So I, I think people don't, but 
Do you have any opinions on finding your own mortgage broker as opposed to having your realtor sort of just use whoever they always use? I think as far as bankers are concerned, like bankers, your mortgage lender, whoever it is, if you go to someone online, it's all about really what you're looking for. It's about the rules and the policies because just about all of them are working off the same rate because the rates are generally market rates unless they're trying to price themselves out, which we're seeing a lot of nowadays. But in general, they're all looking at the same base rate. So then the question becomes, how much service do you want? Are you cool with going through an online lender when you might never meet the person, maybe call them on the phone a couple times? Or are you cool with developing a relationship with a lender where if you need to, you can walk into their office and ask them questions? Or you can show them some forms and have them point, oh, this is this, this is this. Or someone you can just sit in their office for an hour and have a conversation. So I think it's all about what you're looking for. And then the policies on what kind of flexibility. Like I mentioned, my bank allows you to do, or the mortgage lender I used, allows me to do whatever term I wanted. You want a 19-year mortgage? You want a 23-year mortgage? You want a 24-and-a-half-year mortgage? Sure. Some will only do 15 or 30. That's it. So... I think it's more about the terms of what kind of features do they have and then what are you looking for? If you're looking for that face-to-face kind of connection, like if you want to build a relationship with a lender and you know you have someone where you can go sit in their office, talk to them face-to-face, point out different items on the document, have them explain it to you, get their opinions on certain things, and then you know you're buying another house in five years and say, like, hey, I can go back to them instead of it being a little bit less personal by doing it online. But if you can do it and it's less personal online and they offer you a better rate because they're not paying any lenders or they have less people because they don't have to have physical locations, like if you're just price oriented, that might be the better option for you. We've actually done it both ways there as well. We've gone through straight online and then we've we've done the local one. And I don't know that I necessarily have had any kind of preference. Yeah, back to what I mentioned before, it's really like as long as it's a smooth process, you just forget that they even exist was my experience. And, and we didn't have any issues. So I, I don't have any complaints, but I don't I don't know what outstanding service in that area would be to, to really point out and say, wow, they were great. On my podcast over the last month, I've actually done interviews with both a real estate agent and a mortgage lender. I gave them the same hypothetical and they both laughed and said, yes, that is exactly right. So the barometer for how good your real estate agent and your mortgage lender are is that if you get to the end of the process, you know, complete end, you've got the keys, you've got the house. If you sit there for a second and think, what did I even pay those guys for? They probably were the good choice. Exactly. Like they took so much off your shoulders and handled so much that you don't even know what they contributed to the whole thing. That means they handled everything for you in the background. They didn't even have to bother you with it. They just went and took care of business. So if you're sitting there questioning, why did I even pay this realtor's commission? That's why. So that you didn't have to deal with all of that. I think that's right. The best you can think in your mind is you didn't notice because the things that they were having to do, they did in such a way that you didn't notice, which basically translates to convenience. A couple other things I think we didn't quite get to. One fairly obvious What is your recommendation for how much you need to have down for your loan? Because, of course, the infamous leading up to 2008 instances is people are getting loans with these ridiculously crazy floating options and derivatives and so on and so forth. And and people that never should have been getting loans were, uh, of course, it tightened up for a while. I think it's been loosened up a little more. But 20%, of course, has been 
like the gold standard, but there are of course other loans that you can get. So rule of thumb for what your down payment percentage should be. The primary problem with how much should I put down is going to be either A, can I qualify for the loan? Or B, what kind of mortgage insurance am I looking at? Those are the only two questions that get answered by what's your down payment. So depending on what program you're doing, it could be a 0% loan program. It should be a, or it could be a 3% loan program. It could be a VA loan program, which doesn't charge PMI at all, which is private mortgage insurance. It's a cost-benefit breakdown too. So if with $0 down, you can buy a house and maybe owning is cheaper than renting in your specific area. Well, if you're paying less in your total mortgage payment than you are in rent, but there's an additional PMI, which kind of twists the numbers a little bit, well, I would say get the house. Because you get the house, a lot of that payment is going towards equity, which is you paying yourself, basically, by paying down the loan. So really, it's a math problem. But if you're going to be in a house for a long time, and you're going FHA... FHA has a 3% down payment, but they will charge you PMI for the entire life of the loan, even when you get to 20% equity. So if you know you're going to be in a house forever and you don't want to refinance, you might want to avoid FHA because you're going to pay that forever until you refinance out of it. Alternatively, if you have a VA loan, if you have a VA loan and you qualify to not have PMI, do 0% down. Go for it. Really, it's a math problem. If you can get into a house and your payment minus the equity you're putting in is less than what renting is, I say do it. But if you have that down payment, that's going to lower your total payment that you're making towards your mortgage. So that flips the numbers again for you. So it's all a matter of what's the better deal, renting or buying. And you know what the rental prices are for at least what kind of house you're looking for. So all you got to do is work out the numbers with the mortgage. And that's something that a mortgage lender can really help you with. So what kind of down payment do I need to save me money every month on this payment? It's been a little while since I've done some of these comparisons, but there is some fluctuation in the uh, rate that you're going to get, depending on how much you put down, correct? I I don't know much about the VA loans, and I suspect it's less of a consideration for those. I I believe last I knew for FHA, it, it went into consideration, but... General rule is the more you are able to put down, the better rates that you would qualify for. Actually, as far as I know, your down payment doesn't have too, too much to do with the rate. The rate is more how much of a loan you're getting versus your annual income. So what's your payment to overall annual income, like that calculation, and then your credit score. So I think there is maybe a program or two where that's going to come into effect, what your down payment is. But... I think primarily where it hits you is the PMI. Our latest, which of course is the one I have most top of mind, was a you know straight conventional loan. And I seem to remember it being on that kind of a scale that if you could get to 10%, here was the range that was available to you. And if you got a little bit higher, then you could get to better rates. And absolutely agree with you that PMI is the real big one <laughs> because that's just money right out the door. It's not going to equity or anything else and until you get to that 20%, unless you're in some of those special programs, it's something to be considered. And of course, that rolls all up into that math problem of what your income is for the month and whether or not you can afford it when you're laying out all the options that you have available to you. A couple other maybe quick hits on the back end. Once you put your 
offer in, we've touched a little bit on the back and forth that can occur if you're asking for closing costs, stuff like that. I, I think we both agree that that stuff really, really depends on the market like we talked about. If it's a seller's market, you're not going to have as much leverage to try to get extra money uh, in the overall deal or again, having closing costs paid for, for example. Um, but you do, of course, need to feel pretty good about who's going to do the inspection for the house and what they're going to find. That's going to be another round of negotiations, depending on what's found there. Did you find any either pitfalls to avoid with the inspection or tips that made it an easier process? (laughs) I just say get one, no matter what, get one. I mean, I bought new construction and statistically new construction should have the least amount of problems. Because, you know, no one's lived in it. There's there's no wear and tear. The only thing they would find would be some kind of mistake in the construction or spots where they cut corners. And look, the inspection's $300. Like, you're buying a $100,000, $150,000, $200,000, dollars $400,000 house. $300 is not that big of an expense. So I got, I'm going to make this quick, I got an inspection, and what they found was the framing for when they were laying the slab that they built my house on one of the bits of the frame kind of collapsed inward. So the concrete didn't fully make the slab. So there's this one corner that's like right under my bedroom that wasn't done correctly. Like it wasn't anything that was going to fall apart, but how it was done over time as there's water and snow and all that good stuff, I'm going to need them to redo the foundation within five to 10 years because of that problem, because of the $300 I spent in the inspection The guy caught that. The builder didn't even notice. So the inspector caught it, gave the report to the builder. Builder saw it, called his guy within five minutes and was like, hey, we need to fix this. Yeah, that's a great example of yeah why the inspection is so important. And I think all of the rules would apply as far as doing some research, getting some referrals, et cetera, et cetera, on the person that's going to do your inspection. So the more that they can catch to protect you, better shape you'll be in for that very large investment that you're getting ready to make. Uh, well, let's end on this. Speaking of needing house corrections, now you, you bought new construction, so probably not a lot of renovations, but any DIY projects that you've had to undertake at this point? Well, the first thing I learned very quickly how to put up blinds because it's, it's really fun to move into a house. So I was in a company that they kind of do the quote-unquote cookie cutter houses like they have the 10 floor plants and that's all they do and they're a company that you kind of get nickel and dimed on it's like like literally a garage door opener is an upgrade a doorbell is an upgrade like that that's the kind of that's the kind of company we're talking about here so there are no blinds so i moved into the house and people could just look into my bedroom (laughs) so i learned very quickly how to put up blinds blinds some things with the countertops i had to look at putting in a fridge pro tip take the handles off the fridge door or even take the doors <laughs> off because otherwise it's going to be very difficult to get it in the house <laughs> well i guess maybe rounding out the overall experience and certainly there were items that we could have even gone more in depth into but assuming the inspection goes the way that it should, and there's not major issues that would cause you to walk away from the deal. Of course, you would get to your closing and hopefully happily ever after because you've done all of your due diligence. And I think that's the real theme here is continue to do due diligence all the way through the process. As anybody would agree, this is likely the biggest purchase you're ever going to have 
first home, second home, whatever, uh, throughout the process. So you don't want to put yourself in a bad position that it messes up the rest of your finances, causes undue stress and so on. So um, take hopefully some of the advice that we've talked about and even continue to use your realtor and your other resources that you have when you're going through the process. Well, and Alex, I really appreciate you joining today. Do you want to go ahead and give folks more information again about your podcast and any other maybe events, promotions where people can find you? So I actually don't have a website, which is where most people start. Primarily, I'm on just about anything that you can play a podcast on. I'm on it. That's Main Street Finance, and that's Main ST, ST and a dot. Main Street Finance, I'm on Twitter at Main Street Money. I answer questions for, at least for the moment, until, you know, I blow up. But for the moment, I answer every question that people email me. So that's going to be Main Street without a dot. MainSTFinance at gmail.com. My show comes out every Tuesday morning. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, uh, this random podcast player that's in India. Basically anywhere. Spreaker.com. I'm everywhere. I answer questions. I post tips. And it's not something you got to be cumulative. I name each episode. Here's what I'm going to teach you about. So feel free to pick and choose what you're looking for and forgive episode one. (laughs) (laughs) So I think what I heard is start with episode one and then. No, 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 don't do that. (laughs) No. Well, of course, heck, I was on an episode, so they can't all be bad. No, it's very good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all very good stuff. And again, I, I really applaud anybody that's promoting financial literacy because uh, it's a shame when people get into a position where they've dug themselves into a mess and caused themselves undue stress, et cetera, et cetera. It can get to be a real problem. So folks go check out the show. Alex, again, I appreciate you joining here and we will be in touch. Sounds good. Thanks for inviting me. It was good to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.